Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. They come from the unknown, and they're here now, hiding, waiting to strike. You can feel their presence all around you. Never before have you come this close to the edge of terror. Never before have you faced anything so strange and sinister, so bizarre and unnerving. Never until now. David Cronenberg's The Brood. Unleashed, the brood will destroy anyone who gets in their way. David Cronenberg's ultimate experience in inner terror, starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. The brood, they're waiting for you. Welcome to another installment of my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of March, we're honoring none other than the master of body horror himself, David Cronenberg. And today's episode highlights the late 70s Cronenberg film The Brood, in which Frank, played by Art Hindell, discovers his institutionalized ex-wife Nola, played by Samantha Egger, is being subjected to unconventional and aggressive therapy techniques amidst a series of brutal murders that hit close to home. And to help me break down the twisted relationship-infused horror of the brood is returning friend of the show and BloodyDisgusting.com's video game editor, Neil Bolt. Neil, welcome back to the show, man. Good to be back once again. Is it the hat trick, I think, now? This is, <laughs> at this point... <laughs> The first two are auditions for the third uh, the third conversation we're going to have today. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> but uh, it's it's great that I get to kind of chat with you today about David Cronenberg, a director that I have a lot of admiration for in terms of the span of his career, in terms of like the films that he began making and then seeing that evolve. And yet he never moves away from some of the themes and um, imagery from his early films mm. if anything it literally evolves it never kind of like leaves behind anything and I think it's one of the directors that from his first two features it's something that you can see a lot of the DNA from those movies in later of his films and yet it never feels like he's kind of egregiously returning to the well it feels like he's taking those older ideas from his career and then really building upon them in the best ways possible yeah yeah absolutely I think for most people they sort of get around the middle you know the peak Cronenberg if you will years is where they sort of enter it and discover the other stuff either side later but um, I say that, as you say that there's something to each era of Cronenberg that is fascinating in that as you say he has a consistency even if he shifts away from doing the more horror-led things that he used to do and you know, maybe some of the anger isn't there that was once there. That the, uh, I mean, the film we'll talk about today is very much <laughs> it is a built from a place of anger, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, but yeah, he's a fascinating, fascinating director in so many ways. And there's, there's still so much of his stuff I, I want to see, you know, and especially in the later years. You know, I've seen stuff like Cosmopolis, which uh, it's just seems very Cronenberg-esque in, in some ways, but in a lot of ways, it was the first time it really felt like a departure from what I'm used to for him. You know, it's like and Robert Patterson 
probably the first time I actually watched him in a film ever, you know, because I, I didn't watch, I didn't watch Harry Potter, I didn't watch Twilight, so it was, this was it, and it was like, wow, okay, this guy's good, you know, it's certainly in good stead for performances from him. That's part of what I love about doing this Masters of Horror series every month is that it gives me an opportunity to not only explore new films of his that I've, or films of his that I've never seen, like for an episode I recorded the other day, it was for uh, Existence, a film I had never seen because uh. his 90s catalog is a part of his catalog that I'm not super familiar with. I'm more familiar with his 80s stuff and some of his more recent films, whether it be like Eastern Promises or A History of Violence. And so to get to really explore part of his filmography that I'm not familiar with has been not only refreshing and enjoyable, but also getting to see his work evolve and it seeing uh, films that he's made from different points in his life. And the 70s were definitely his kind of like angriest uh, phase. And that's definitely true of today's film, The Brood. But uh, in before we get too much into The Brood, I'd like to ask it, sort of your Cronenberg origin story. What was your first exposure, introduction to his work? See, I was thinking about this before and thinking it had to be The Fly, because, you know, the, the, I, I still to this day think my mum had a thing for Jeff Goldblum, because I think there's so many films from that <laughs> era that I watched. I think maybe he was just that popular. I didn't realise it, but, you know, stuff like The Tall Man, The Tall Guy, The Fly, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and all that, you know, he was just everywhere. And, I remember seeing that but it wasn't it was um i think i watched video dream dream just before that and and again one of those wonderful late night experiences where you've never seen anything of this film before it sounds weird why not and it was being weird yeah so yeah. <laughs> you know debbie harry is just mesmerizingly good in that film and almost makes up for the fact that you know James Woods is James Woods now and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you know I don't love that film as much as I used to uh, because of that but you know I still think it was just like the first time I really sort of thought wow yeah, this I like this kind of horror this mix of the classic horror tragedy horror of you know the, stuff, the likes of Frankenstein in you know, that way you know, things are going wrong to people that, that and their bodies that they can't explain and they're lashing out against it and then the fly was just it, it was everything in that it was the perfect tragic film in, in regards to it. a scientist thinking he knows everything and just you know, being his own downfall is his hubris and thinking he knew how to do things and oh it, and it's just such a grossly sad thing to see what happens as he gets it. You know, but yeah, and it's just a lot of those earlier films of his and as I said, The Fly and Videodrome are like, as we said, the peak sort of era of Cronenberg. The point where he was commercially viable, if you will. You know, when you look back to things like Shivers and Rabid, and it's, it's nuts that that's the guy that gets to make more commercially viable horror later you know it's, it's not quite peter jackson levels of holy shit the guy that made that is going to make this and it's like, it's like but <laughs> right. but it yeah he's just yeah it's an interesting sort of area you can see why people love that era of Cronenberg so much that video drawing flies sort of, and scanners sort of time because it is just him having just enough money to to sort of show his ideas as he wants them while still having enough independence and you know that little spite and anger to him that makes some of his best work and I think yeah he sort of matured later on and became such and did new and interesting things with, with stuff you know, like the history of violence I think it's one of his best films you know and it's such a different film in so many ways to what he did back then, but it still feels so much like a David Cronenberg film. And I, I don't want to say it's the last great film he did, because I think Eastern Promises is also really very good, and Cosmopolis was also did a good job too. But yeah, it's probably the last sort of time period where I really felt invested in Cronenberg's new films as they came out. And now for a brief intermission. If you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. 
And thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. Yeah, so for me, The Fly was my first introduction to him, definitely. It was one of those things where I went to my grandparents' house, they had it on VHS, and I was like, oh, I'll throw this on, and threw it on. And a quality to his films that I think is a real testament to his mastery and to see him grow with this skill is his ability to insert us into familiar worlds and then immediately turn our understanding of those worlds on their head, right? Yeah. A lot of his films, I feel, they open in a way that there's nothing really indicative of his specific brand of horror, right? Mm. You're kind of inserted into these very almost mundane worlds. Um, something like The Fly, it begins with two people meeting at a party, having a conversation. Something like Videodrome, which is a little more titillating in terms of like it being so in your face with the things that Max Ren is into, like all this uh, softcore pornography and like super violent images. But at the end of the day, it's a guy that dabbles in certain material that might be taboo. But at the same time, the ways in which he puts us into this world, it's not sort of like zero to a hundred right out the gate, right? Mm. He spends so much time establishing these worlds and giving it context within characters, their motivations, their relationships that seeing his more recent films and it being so devoid of the horror elements that he got his start in filmmaking with, it's a testament to why those films, I think, stand up on their own, despite the fact they're not horror films. Mm. I think that his attention to characters and relationships and having something personal to say about everything, especially like The Brood, we're going to get into how that personal of a film that yeah. is, it makes it so that way, even if you can't really, if you don't necessarily buy into the mutant child aspect and all of these things, at the core of the film, it's about a relationship, a, cons uh, a contrasting relationship or a relationship that's fallen mm. apart. And this is really an angsty release or of a lot of probably repressed emotions that have a real world basis. So they come across that yeah. way in a way that I think really makes this film work in a way that it didn't for me the first time I saw mm. it. So I'm happy, I'm uh, excited to break down some of the reasons why uh, The Brood is such a standout Cronenberg film for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is, it is, you know, one of the later ones I got to see in a lot of ways, you know, it's like, but it, it has just so much about it that works for me in a Cronenberg film. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not like I can say, oh, I relate to this because of this, this, and this. You know, I can't say I have any kind of mental health issues that are depicted here. I mean, certainly not to go manifesting demon children, but, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've not had the problems of having to thank God, you know, divorce, but it, it's a fear, you know, and that, that's a, maybe that's why it hits in the way it does, because when you are you're married and you have kids and you have this legacy to yourself, you don't want to ever think that that's going to happen, that you have to deal with this horrible, bitter fallout and uh, not all of us would have the uh, outlet that David had to uh, to express <laughs> his own very real life distaste <laughs> to his uh, uh, own divorce, which obviously inspired the brood. And yeah, the, it's a film where I look at. I mean, the kid, the main kid in this, just okay. She doesn't do much. She's very almost catatonic in the way where she is. It kind of makes sense in how everything's going. You know, one parent's you know, full on lost it, and the other parent's just angry all the time, just bound to just be sat in this middle ground. And, you know, it kind of plays into what happens later in the film. But it just uh, never in a film have I ever felt for a child so much to go think, oh, that poor kid. You know, every time something mm -hmm. happens, just like just being subjected to this, that, and the other. It's like, and, you know, in, proper Cronenberg fashion there's just scenes in this film where you're like fucking hell you got away with that you know that's that's and he just makes it look so casual you know it's so one of the things that's always remarkable about Cronenberg's films is that he makes violence you know, extreme and weird violence seem so ordinary and so mundane and ties into as you were saying the, the fact that the world's these films inhibit are usually very mundane and very ordinary and that's what makes them just that bit more unsettling I, I, I find that with Rabbit and Shivers especially they make a good double bill in that regard because they just have this very 
normalness to them. It's, it's very Canada, you know. It's like it's it's not uh, not like poster child Canada. It's like this is the rural areas of Canada. Here you go, and it yeah, it just feels very like a place that, that you could visit. That's that you could live in like anyone else and doesn't feel like film sets you know which it feels like a place to go and the brood has a lot of that too even though it's goes a bit more fantastical in terms of uh you know having this whole cultish self-help group thing and all that it's uh yeah so it's so much grounded in reality not not just in the, the thematics but also in just the world that it that's where the horror comes from yeah and he's exploring very real emotions and sort of situations that even if you can't necessarily relate to it on a level where it's like oh i've experienced that like i haven't been divorced but at the same time i've at at periods in my life i've had things and then feared them to go away Mm. right whether it be relationships or other things it's like as soon as you have something that you want and then there's that constant fear of it going away or losing that and his tackling of that it being divorced in this instance where the person that he loved has now been fully committed to a psych ward or a psychotherapy uh, center. And now it's like struggling for custody of a child. There's this idea that how can you, I would assume if you're a parent, like there's this primal instinct to protect your child at Mm. all times. How do you necessarily do that when they're only with you 50% of the time? And that's something that the film presents in a way that I think since he taps into the emotion in such a raw way that even if you don't have kids, like I don't have kids, but it's still an emotion that you can connect with. It's something that you can at least see yourself being put into the protagonist's shoes. This idea that, yeah, I feel for this character, but also the anxiety and stress of the reality of their character and that he's constantly dealing with this struggle. And of course, we're going to get more into the characters that get in the way of him doing that, which I mean, Cronenberg's able to, uh, to explore his sort of repressed anger in a way that I think probably made this film very cathartic for him, yeah. but it comes across in a way that that catharsis really lends itself to the exploring of topics like mental illness, topics like uh, parenthood, and uh, and sort of trying to hold on to the grasps of something that's no longer a, a fundamental part of your life. Hmm. I mean, you could be very critical of the fact that he has made a film to demonize someone, a real person in a lot of ways. And yeah, the, there's an aspect of that you can, it, it makes sense that he would be that kind of guy that would, you know, cause he, he's a disdain for human human being bodies and, and, and things like that anyway. So yeah, I get it. Yeah, I don't necessarily condone that he feels that way and that he felt that that's how to depict someone with a mental health problem. But at the same time, you know, as a way of expressing it it's an interesting way of expressing it it's like you can have something like this come from a very negative place and it's still very artful you know it it still made something meaningful with it even if it is mean-spirited in what it does it's his very personal way of telling it and yeah it's it, it goes it's I would be, you know, there there are ways you could deal with these sort of things, and most of them would be very humdrum dramas in a lot of ways, I think. But this is very much, uh, he pretty much tapped into everything in his head at that time and made this. He doesn't paint anyone as really being that sympathetic, even, you know, Art Hindle's Frank is just, you know, He's a regular guy. He's not particularly special. There's nothing about him that makes you think, well, I don't really see why anyone would be particularly after him or want to be with him. You know, but he obviously had something. But in his case, as he points out, you know, Nora, Nola, sorry, is um, clearly wanted someone to try and help her feel normal and to break out of the cycle of abuse and problems she'd had. And of course, that's you know, the trauma she suffered made her suffer more and made everyone else suffer more so on that side of it it feels a little more sympathetic than maybe he intended in that Mm. 
he may be saying, well, this person's crazy. They, you know, that everything they do is wrong and they need help and I should have custody of this kid. And at the same time, you know, he's saying, but it's not their fault they're crazy, that they've got problems. It's because nobody ever dealt with their problems. And now somebody's helping her with that problem, but they're not helping in the right way. And, mm. you know, ultimately that causes it to, in this world, manifest into something else. You know, it's, you know, you think of these demon kids as basically being the ulcers on her, you know, the the lesions on her body that, that, that grow out of malice and anger and paranoia. You know, she she wants to be normal, but she's can't shake everything that's been imprinted on her by her parents who, you know, it's interesting that they show that you know, her father has remorse and you know, guilt for not stepping in and doing better by her. But they really show her mother as being quite normal and you know, she gets on with, with Frank really well and despite everything. And it, it, it's an interesting dynamic because, again, if it's drawing from Cronenberg's own references, it's again saying that Oh, you know, this person seems nice and normal, but again, clearly pointing out it was their fault, and everyone else would make it seem like this was a normal person who was quite lovely to other people, but clearly just was just continuing some maybe some cycle of abuse that she had had from her own childhood and sort of passing the torch, which you know goes all the way to the end of the film where it's clearly happening again. You know, the mm -hmm. Yeah, why not? Because you know, the amount that that poor little girl has seen and endured in that time, she's bound to sort of carry on that cycle. And that's that's the tragedy of the story of the brood is that this little girl, everyone else is deciding what's best for her and how to treat her and like that. And all the while, she's getting damaged by everybody's selfish action. That's the element that I picked up on a lot more on my rewatch. The emphasis on I've purposefully stopped started paying more and more attention just to her even though she has such little dialogue in the film she really doesn't have to say a lot to convey just how traumatizing this entire film is for her and the fact that other than somebody checking in with her as soon as something traumatic happens saying are you okay like this kid for the most part you would assume is not getting the services or the attention that they actually need and how they are subjugated to so much trauma, whether it be mutant demon children or just an abusive relationship with the mother. I mean, it really, it speaks to the tragedy of the film and her being obviously the most sympathetic character. And in terms of you talking about this film sort of just like nasty mean streak in it and sort of demonizing uh, Nola as being the sole evil entity or an evil entity within the film, I mean, I don't, I think I would have been, found the film to be a very, even more so off-putting to the degree that it was distracting had they not had Dr. Raglan's character played by Oliver yeah. Reed. Like he is the perfect equalizer of evil in this, in that he is a person that you can view and you can blame as being responsible for exploiting Nola's uh, mental state, whatever that may be. And whether he was able, he's exacerbating it and how he's like exploiting that basically. And to have somebody to direct your anger at and not, and really have it be unquestionable anger towards him or resentment towards him up until the like final moments of the movie where he tries to have this sort of redemptive arc. It helps to channel that anger in a way that had it not had that, I think it would have been a lot more difficult for me to stomach just the resentment and the, um, the hate that Cronenberg channels at Nola and how that has a real world basis, which makes that portrayal of a character even more sort of disturbing mm. and being just nasty, like like we've said. Um, and so I think that that character, Dr. Raglan, is really pivotal. And I didn't necessarily attribute that to him the first time I saw the movie. And so I have a lot more sort of respect for that character existing because it's it, it's the equalizer of that hate it makes it so that way the film is not just this guy going after his ex-wife the entire mm. film went now say what you will about that making this experience more stomach like uh consumable for mm. me but i think in terms of this is a movie and this is a narrative i think his character serves a much greater purpose than uh than i appreciated the first time yeah and you know it's easy to say that with someone like oliver reed who 
one of those actors who just had the this effortless quality that he could just pretty much do anything. He could phone in a performance and be better than pretty much anyone on set, uh, quite easily, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, given his propensity to uh, having a few uh, drinks, it, he's um, you know, it was it was quite likely that he would have off days and not really feel like he's putting a lot into it. But he's very quietly effective in what he does here. It's like he's he's one of those where I think when he performs you, you think you don't like the actor because he just he plays people who are like borderline unlikable. It's not that they're necessarily awful people or anything like that, but it's just something about them that irks you and makes you think, ah, dude, just fuck off, you know, just just leave <laughs> like that. And and he does that and it's him. It's just Yes, it's part of him as a person, but it's also just the way he plays characters. He understands that part of himself, if you will, is uh, makes for a great character. And he is this you know, very cult-like, calm authority figure that doesn't quite know what he's getting himself into. And it, it does, you know, he, he almost drinks his own Kool-Aid, if you will, in, this, in believing how good he is at his job and that this is all because of him <laughs> and yeah he eventually has this sort of intervention in finding out what's happened because of what he's done and what he's enabled you know, yeah, that's the thing he's enabling the bad side of Nola and he's causing her to get worse in a lot of ways like that I mean we don't know how far this whole you know phenomenon has gone before it, it happened before it happened to her mother or anything like that it's pertained that he has sort of unlocked this in her in, in trying to deal with her problems and yeah it's fascinating how he sort of does do that balance as you say between the two and, and yeah it, it's one of the, the best things about the brood I think yeah. you know Oliver Reed as I said someone hard to like but very easy to respect in terms of what he can bring to a film yeah and it really is his understated nature that stops him from ever feeling like a caricature of a psychiatrist or anything Mm. like that it feels like somebody that has almost stumbled into a perceived success with this sort of like kool-aid drinking cult status that he has right Mm. there's this he's always positioning himself as this figure of authority within this realm and yet it's almost like he's just kind of like going through the motions and doesn't fully understand that. Yeah. And yet he never becomes this person that is like preaching. He never has a preaching from the mountaintop no. moment where he's telling people like, this is I, everything that is happening and all my all your success in therapy is because of me, right? We never get that kind of like moment that I think would take the brood from being a place of very personal and having a very grounded setting that we're introduced to and grounded situation and then making it, into this sort of like cartoonish depiction of uh, of like a heightened version of a supernatural phenomenon divorce tale, mm. right? It kind of feels like having people that are very understated and it ties into that sort of mundane nature that Cronenberg has in crafting his world and in crafting these characters to a certain extent. And I think that that is one of the qualities that on a rewatch I appreciated a lot more. And I think coming to his films especially like his early 70s films, that sense of mundane, I don't know if that's something I could appreciate as a teenager, mm-hmm. obviously, because you're kind of like, I want to see, and I mean, I was spoiled. I started with The Fly, which yeah. even, I mean, that film has a energy level to it. And it's thanks to that uh, kinetic duo of Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum that you're in immediately enthralled and there's an energy there that sustains until, well, it sustains throughout the entire thing, but that being a jumping off point into some of the, goriest and goopiest practical effects out there moments that you really want as a kid and you obviously still want as an adult is very different than his 70s Mm. films and i think that this film is i've had a lot more of an appreciation for the brood in revisiting or actually excuse me watching for the first time shivers and rabid just this year and getting to see the basis of his career in the 70s and seeing that in this film when it came out in i believe 79 Mm. getting to see him take the culmination of those and really begin to refine the characters and have an attention to the world in a way that, while I think there was fragments of that in Shivers and Rabid, it feels much more 
refined in his sense of style and communicating that because when I compare Sh um, The Brood to both of those films, this is the much more personal film. This is a film that I think, while the, there are no performances that rival anything like uh, what we got in The Fly, at the same time though, the performances feel like they are perfectly serviceable for the themes that he wants to tackle. And there's at least a sense of personality in the performances that while they might not be my favorite pers uh, performances of actors in his 70s films or in his filmography in general, I still feel that they are really being true to those characters in a way that it sustains the narrative that he's telling in those in a much more sort of robust fashion that makes for just a more memorable story. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of a middle ground with this where there are some very good performances and there are some underwhelming performances probably by you know proxy because that the good ones are so good as we said it's it makes sense you know samantha egger uh, as nola is you know for what she's given is really good you know she's really convincing as this you know, needy paranoid damaged person who just doesn't quite understand the trouble she's causing you know in, in not dealing with her anger properly and like Oliver Reed as you said again just it, it brings so much gravity to uh, this situation it, you know as we said before it's a shame that you know our lead isn't our Frank isn't particularly well fleshed out as a person he's very the acting there is not great and it doesn't sort of help make you sympathetic to his cause you know, given how Cronenberg approached it, probably wasn't the intention. You know, you want mm -hmm. someone a bit more uh, convincing and sympathetic, but he, yeah, he's not that guy. And, uh, and the support cast is okay you know, in that regard. It's just that they're there, do their job, and that's it. But um, yeah, it's I said it, he's yeah, it's not the worst bunch of performances I've seen. I, you know, I as much as I like Shivers and Rabbit. There are a lot of you know, hit and miss things in there too, but it, you appreciate why because of when it happened in his career and who he had available to him. It's fair enough. And you know, the overall atmosphere and tone that he sets sort of negates that. Whereas here it starts to feel like he's forming a new thing. You know, his identity is more solid. And so the flaws maybe feel a bit more prominent in that regard and I don't know I can wave them away a bit with it just because I think the ambition is higher again here. you know like you know ambition was high for the budget and where he was in his career when you go back to things like Shivers but uh, it was still very much a lot of aimless stuff happening and a lot of it was chaotic you know which Sure, works for a lot of Cronenberg stuff, but he's as he's gone on, he has found his voice and how to uh, rein that in and make it, you know, channel it into what it should be. Right, uh, yeah. and especially during this period from here, to the brood going through the eighties to the early nineties, is where he's really getting that balance of he's got the money, he's got the know-how, he's got the right people around him, he's got the right actors and he knows what he wants to do and completely and he doesn't have to sort of give halfway on that and yeah it, it's probably why i think it's so great is it is just that sort of the real kickoff point for his best era you know his most inventive his most ambitious his most creative time in his career and i think yeah, it, it's that's why it sort of acts as a sort of tethering point between the old Cronenberg, the, this up-and-coming uh, indie filmmaker, to this to king of body horror uh, image that he got from that point on. And I think an element of the brood that I really appreciate, especially when comparing it to Shivers and Rabbit, is his tackling of the taboo feels a lot more focused in what he wants to strike at it because something my initial reaction to something like shivers when i first saw it was that this is a lot of shocking imagery that feels like it is shocking for the sake mm, of being shocking yeah. and i mean 
there is a certain, while I can appreciate what he achieves with that film, and I think that that film is, I was surprised by how affecting that film is, given yeah. how it's his first sort of horror feature film. I think that some of it is definitely there and there's not a lot of weight to it. It's kind of just shocking for the sake of it. And then you kind of get a little bit more of that in Rabid. But then The Brood, I feel like the taboo subject matter that he is presenting is the same in the sense that it is uncomfortable, but it is examining human behavior in a way that is not extraterrestrial extraterrestrial or parasitic, uh, like a parasitic yeah. threat. It's more about like the film opens between an intimate moment with Dr. Raglan and a patient. And they're doing this like weird daddy role playing where it's talking about a patient's trauma they sustained from their father. And Dr. Raglan is pretending to be the father. And this grown man is like calling him daddy over and over. And it's very uncomfortable and very disturbing. And it taps into that same ability of Cronenberg's to really portray taboo subject matter or to portray something that is fundamentally uncomfortable mm. but that scene doesn't ever go into like it never becomes lewd or anything like that it's more about the way that people are talking and the weight of their experience that comes across in their dialogue that i find to be equally as uncomfortable but in deciding to go that route and have it be dialogue that might dabble in the taboo rather than shocking imagery right out mm. the gate i think that shows a level of restraint that Cronenberg not two films ago did, might not have necessarily had and there's a growth there and I think that when looking from his filmography from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s his ability to really dial in his the sort of like extreme lengths that he can go to bring that body horror about he has an ability to not get carried away with that stuff because then obviously if the entire thing is just super gory graphic every single minute of the film then it loses its impact and yeah that's not something that i think a lot of filmmakers learn maybe that quickly in their uh, feature film career yeah he does and this is definitely the point where he does get that idea that you can sort of punctuate it throughout the film in parts rather than just and lead up to something properly that, that will have more impact which you know in the end of this film is uh, when he finally does something really a bit you know, disturbing and body horror focused, it's more in, impactful, it's more effective because up until that point, yes, there's been moments of violence, but as we said, he deals with it in a, in a far more subtle and mundane manner than he had before. And, but it's still nasty and like, and you know, especially you think to the um, one at the, the play school, you know, where they come and attack the teacher it's it's you know, brutal and you think the way it's shown is you know this is happening in front of a bunch of kids you know toddlers effectively and you're like bloody hell you know it's still shocking in, in, the, in the way that Cronenberg would like to do but it's not even the most shocking moment of the film you know it's like maybe, maybe right. back then it was but now it feels like wow yeah that's oof, yeah that's mad he would do that and just like there's some really disturbing moments in that and the fact that you know frank comes and covers the teacher's face in that child's drawing and it's like it's just ooh, it's such a great contrast in terms of what he's doing and i think the fact that he waits till the end to show the most you know disgusting part of it which i don't know maybe that's a his very real fear of the whole idea of childbirth maybe as well because it, it, it does have that sort of this is what you can't handle sort of feel to it when you know, Nola reveals her um, her birthing equipment if you will uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah I mean that in itself could have been this big you know showy thing and it's very it's subdued and very much a case of she's you know as, as agitated and as theatrical as Nola gets this is her moment of showing her worst side if you will is so subdued as I said and she just lifts her uh, robe to show well look this is me this is who I am it, she, you know, in a very uh, meta textual level she is just saying this is the character I am this is the problems I have very physically in front of me if you can't handle that then you don't really care you know it's like that and you know, as proves and again 
Cronenberg, maybe on a subconscious level, didn't realize that he was showing that, yeah, he's not some perfect being in this whole situation because his act isn't sympathy or empathy for the situation. It's he's repulsed and he can't hide that. You know, the, the Frank's character, he, he, Frank, sorry, he can't hide the fact that this is disgusting and, and he doesn't like it and she sees it and which unfortunately doesn't work out well for old Reed, but uh, it's uh, yeah it, it's really well done in that regard and again the first instance where Cronenberg really works towards earning an ending and that isn't just pure mania you know and pure chaotic nonsense at times you know uh, I think back to Shivers and Rabbit, especially, they just have those endings that are just like, what the fuck? You know, it's just everything's going on at once and out of nowhere again. And they work as endings but in that way, but they're not as refined. They're very raw, you know, in, in what yeah. they do. This feels very much like a, you know, a, a well-earned end that then has that lovely little epilogue of, you know, getting to you know seeing his daughters sort of she's still very much you know stone-faced she's not reacting much to everything she's seen but it's the repression is showing itself in the same way that it did in her mother that and all these repressed memories you know in this is again based on real things that you know repressing the stresses and problems can you know lead to physical ailments you know and physical lesions on your body and you know that's what the brood are to nola they are the physical lesions that come from finally letting out all her problems and issues and but from bottling them up they've also been there all along you know and this is what's going to happen to the daughter and yes it's that nice sort of ominous tone that it's not all the happiness and sweetness and light now just because mummy's been strangled and that's uh, <laughs> and uh, we can be a good good old family again you know she's going to hate him in on some level you know for everything and again for as much as Cronenberg felt he is again showing that he is this character that is him in this situation he is no perfect person in, in this whole situation he can be he's as angry as he is and as justified and he, as he feels in his actions he is not making these actions out of anything other than his own selfishness yeah and i think that it was obviously by no mistake that the brood are literally children that she's birthing that are going around and murdering people and it's an interesting contrast from that decision which i think was very clear in terms of or it was very deliberate rather in that he wanted the only people doing the killing to be children because it's almost like an expression of of uh, expressing one, like the tr the child Candace's kind of own trauma. It almost serves as kind of like a parallel to this child is being traumatized essentially by these supernatural events, yeah. but also the trauma of being a bouncing ball between two parents, right? And how that can, especially at such a young age, how that can have a profound effect on somebody growing up. and. I think that Cronenberg, again, in his own way, and he's so very nonchalant about brutal violence, like he just never makes it feel as though it is, while it's shocking that it's kids doing these violent acts, at the same time, the film never really lingers on that. And I think that if it were a lesser director, characters would be making more of a big deal mm. about that. But it's almost like so little time is devoted to actually talking about the fact that these are children that are killing people it almost just makes it like commonplace in this film world in a way that I think makes the violence shocking, but then Cronenberg's restraint in only having there being, I think like three instances of violence in the film, it allows those to be very punctuated and to be very memorable um, in a way that only Cronenberg can. So that way we kind of get these moments of violence early on that are well filmed and well choreographed. But at the end of the day, like it's somebody getting beaten to death with a mallet right. and you can't see the attacker's face or anything like that. He does a really great job of concealing, at least for the first kill, that it's a little kid doing it, right? And so I think the restraint in not leading with a big practical moment early on in the film and saving that pop for the end of the film really allows it 
to feel full circle in this idea. It comes back to it being tied to Nola and the character and the conflict between these two characters is when you have that big payoff in that, hey, she reveals that she's been birthing these things on the outside. And then you get that gross moment of her like ripping the sack open and then licking blood off the fetus in this really disgusting moment that I feel we had a lot of moments like that spread throughout something like Shivers or mm. Rabid. And so by the end of those films, it was no longer effective for me at least. And so had the brood had moments that were equally disgusting littered throughout, I don't know that the end has that payoff that it has because it feels so earned and you have that big, oh my God moment that really capitalizes mm. on the idea that these are two people that are in a conflict of this supernatural event and yet the entire film never feels um, like it operates within a different like realm of existence or something yeah. like that, like a supernatural depiction of the world. Because had it done that, it would really distract, I think, from Cronenberg expressing his sort of feelings about divorce and about one particular person, whether that is uh, that's the way that somebody should make a film or not. I think it would still feel inauthentic probably to the tone that he was going for or the message that he was going mm. for in the end. And again, for being his third, uh, his third horror film in his career, the restraint to hold back on that moment, I think really has a payoff that, especially on this rewatch, made The Brood hit for me in a way that it did not the first mm. time. Yeah, that's totally understandable. I think it is just, again, you can take it from several angles in, in terms of how it hits and works out. Because, um, and yeah, you can see why it does feel plodding in between the the big beats but it's kind of it's supposed to you know it is one of those films again where you need to have the the, the drawn out mundane sections to get to the next section because everything is normal and that's why it's supposed to be abnormal that these things are happening i mean i could see this film being made remade with the idea that they blame the kid for all the killings constantly and they would never let them mm -hmm. sort of reveal that it was you know these little strange children doing it and, and it's like but you know Cronenberg's like pretty much off you know second kill in he's like nope there you go they know now that it's some sort of demon kid but they think they got it and they didn't and yeah I, it's a, an interesting way of dealing with something you know as well in that regard yeah and he just has the ability again to kind of go the unconventional route for something because I totally agree if they do an American remake of this like that's the angle that half of the film is going to dabble with it's trying to exonerate his own daughter from being a suspect in these murders and it doesn't have that because had they had this sort of like hyper procedural crime narrative as the under mm. uh, uh, subplot to the film then it becomes almost just too fantastical and then you're just like okay well these series of events are becoming so far-fetched that the raw emotion, I think, of a situation that is relatable to a large portion of people, like this idea of grappling with the divorce or grappling with sharing your child with uh, another person, I think would be lost. And again, that's coming from somebody that doesn't have kids, but the raw emotion there of these characters still registers on just the most basic level. And I'm sure that's heightened if you have mm. kids because, to a certain degree, because you will to the most degree if you have children. So it's a testament that he's able to really convey very personal messages in a way that is um, approachable for everyone. And it's something that doesn't feel alienating because had he made it so that way, this was something that only a certain portion of an audience could relate to, then you kind of just sit around bored for half the movie. Mm -hmm. But he really does do a good job of, even if like our protagonist is not the most inspired, at the end of the day, for me, like, sir, is serviceable enough as a vessel for yeah. the feeling of loss, the feeling for wanting to be protective of something, whether it's a person or holding on to a fleeting feeling or relationship. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it as you know, it may not be a great performance, but I think enough comes through to give that character some layers, at least. As I said, to make him seem like a person, because in trying to sort of recreate himself. Cronenberg has actually given the character his own flaws, if you will, you know, in not seeing, in not tolerating the problems of Nola, of not understanding why that, what he does might be a 
problem or problematic and it, uh, that's what makes it more fascinating you know whether the director felt like that or not subconsciously he's done it you know he he has given the, the film more depth than he probably realized in in doing so yeah and i mean again like his handling of violence in such a mundane matter-of-fact manner i think is something that has transcended all of his films in terms of his horror films in that he's just able to very casually have shocking moments of violence and it's presented in a way that doesn't feel doesn't feel like there's an added emphasis on anything i don't know if that's the right way to put it but it never feels like it is a moment that is presented in a way that you would almost be like, oh, this is so shocking, right? He's yeah. just so casual about it, especially when we have the doctor that has that moment where he kind of begins to have this redemptive arc where he tries to save Candace from all the brood children. But then just as soon as he basically is making himself bait so she can run away, we get two or three shots of him like shooting the brood children, yeah. which is, I mean, I don't have kids, but I work with kids. And so that moment is incredibly shocking and disturbing to me on a level yeah. that... I would assume it is just like for a parent and obviously nope it would be disturbing for everybody but i'm saying <laughs> in terms of like seeing an act of violence even if it's a mutant child having a the word child associated with yeah. it just makes it especially disturbing and it, again he's so casual about it because it doesn't linger on that moment mm. right it just kind of like goes with a couple kids get killed and then the doctor's dead and then we jump back to him choking his wife which again is like a hyper-violent moments of violence against women that, again, he doesn't linger on for very long. It kind of happens, and then we move on as if nothing. Yeah, I mean, she goes him in. You know, on, you know, it's, it basically says, tells him to do it. Uh, whether through her own mania or through the fact that she just is genuinely sick of living like that, it, it's, it's there, you know. it's it Again, it's just somewhat a character being so accepting of their death, you know, at that point, you know, and she's birthing life constantly into it, into the world like that. It, it's, yeah, it, it's jarring in the right way. Yeah, and I mean, his ability to really introduce brief moments of violence that are at the perfect moment of the film, and again, not to kind of have, we don't have to have multiple scenes of one of the little mutant children getting killed. We kind of have that one instance, but that one instance is at the precise moments of the film and executed on in a manner that it makes it that much more memorable um, in a way that, yeah, I mean, Teenage Jay, when he saw this, probably was like, yeah, this is like pretty boring to watch, but seeing how everything fits together at a much older age, mm. it's a film that uh, I definitely have done a complete 180 on because I did not enjoy this film the first time I saw it. <laughs> uh, you were telling me you were reading my letterbox review. Uh, and I think I was like, I caught the movie on a bad day or certain things didn't register with me the way they do now to the degree that this is a movie that I think really when you're looking at his films from the 70s and then it moving into the 80s, this feels like a much more mature director going into what I find to be his sort of uh, the cream of the crop in turn of Cronenberg with his 80, his run in yeah. the 80s, which is almost unrivaled in my opinion in horror yeah i mean yeah he goes on quite a run from here and it, it's quite something yeah it's like it, stuff that you know echoed out into pop culture beyond this you know even even the brood to be fair has, has some impact in terms of popular culture it's probably subtler in terms of other films have copied the ideas from it because it's sort of flown under the radar compared to most of his other stuff it, it, it doesn't get picked up on as much but yeah i can think of some films that have used similar you know ideas and topics and to sort of push forward the whole you know family trouble you know, family you know, divorces and whatever so yeah and i think that it's again it's very telling that he's able to you're able to see the you could draw a line from his 70s films all the way up to to a certain extent his films in the early 2000s and just see him continually build on ideas but with each idea or each film he's interpreting it in a new way or he's evolving it in something i feel that like i just i recorded an episode talking about videodrome and then talking about existence and while those two films have similar commentary on technology his ability to really present it in a new refreshing way obviously there's new technology but it's more so able to make a commentary that is still applicable in both films mm -hmm 
through the medium of the blending of technology and humans and flesh and metal and these concepts that he's fascinated with. And yet it never feels like he's just doing another interpretation of a film that he's already done. Yeah. And I think that that's very telling, especially when going back and looking at his 70s films, which I'm now familiar with, going into the 80s and how that bleeds into the 90s and uh, into some of his 2000 films. Yeah. It's... Uh... He's probably long due to do it, again, you know, go back into the genre again. But but uh, he's he's contributed enough, I, I think, to last a lifetime. That's the thing, you know. You've got I've got my fingers crossed. Maybe we'll get one more. But I think he is a director that, if he were to kind of just like hang it all up, his filmography speaks for itself yeah. in terms of him having a undeniable impact not only on the horror genre but in terms of somebody that I think is able to convey a lot of very personal ideas and experiences and things throughout his films, whether that be horror or some of his crime uh, films that he's done in the later part of his career. But yeah, I mean, Cronenberg is an all-timer for a reason for me. And uh, I appreciated having the opportunity to revisit The Brood. Yeah, it's, yeah, Cronenberg in general, I, even myself, I don't, I don't tend to appreciate quite how good he's been for I mean for every film I've seen of his which isn't all of them you know, I don't think I've seen a bad one I, I don't think I've seen an average one you know, it, it, even stuff that's really different even stuff that's really raw has something to it that is distinctly him and uh, has a style and some, you know, even when it's a bit wild and messy and like his earlier work it, or you know, very unhorror like you know, with later stuff it, it still him and it's still entertaining in a way that only he can do you know it's like yeah it, you just look at the filmography over the years and you just think yeah he made all those he made all those good films at different points and he deserves again it is, it's a horror thing you know I think generally when directors get celebrated it's because they, they do you know big dramatic films or big actions or whatever and that's you know that's where they make their name you know you're gonna get more credit for being a sam mendes you know making maybe two three good films in your entire career out of 20 than you are being a david cronenberg making horror films for so long being an icon of that genre because that's you know, unfortunately how part of the, the film industry works it's still it likes the money that horror brings in but it doesn't necessarily give the credit it deserves to the genre uh, and Cronenberg is very much the epitome of that because you know for all the uh, big horror direct, uh, sci-fi horror directors uh, of the past 40 years maybe you know he's fought 50 quite only 50 years thinking back to us now with this but um, yeah he's one of the most consistent and who's managed to evolve while still sort of having that style you know still there in his films was uh, even when films have changed and how he, and he's changed how he's made them you know it's like yeah you can see how his films could be divisive divisive and, and get uh, people rubbed the wrong way in different ways but i think they're saying something if that's the case at the very least so you know I, I remember the peak of it with the likes of Crash and the controversy that caused so I've still you know, I've still got to see that one but uh, you know I remember at the time thinking god that sounds like it'd be mental yeah it'd be crazy it'd be amazing <laughs> to see because it's you know this is after the fly and you know it's just stuff like the dead zone and Video drone and scanners and all that, and thinking, yeah, I'd love to see that. That sounds cool. And I just never got to because it never really came out over here for <laughs> years and years. So um, I think Arrow just brought it um, out over here. And uh, again, Criterion, too. Yeah, I think. so that's uh, that's one that I'll, I'll be watching in the near future. But yeah, it's, there's so much still to see of his old and new. I think. Um, you can even get access now to his old short films and stuff like uh, Crimes of the Future. You know, mm -hmm. the, the stuff that sort of preceded everything. And yeah, I, mean, it's, I like to sort of see both ends of his career still, you know, a, a bit more. But I feel like I've just sort of seen the middle part in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think that 
kind of piggybacking off what you said, I mean, even if you haven't seen a specific Cronenberg film, I think going into it, no matter whether it's in the horror genre or it's in some of his crime stuff, or if it's in something that is kind of like, how do you even identify, how do you even classify it? Something like Crash, you're in for a Cronenberg film. And I think that you don't get to be able to describe a film as being so-and-so-esque unless you have established throughout your career that you're in for something that is completely original and it might be deriving inspiration from certain genres or certain types of films, but his ability to really take interests, blend them into certain topics and subgenres and make it his own unique thing mm. that is more than more than likely wild as hell, mm. I think is very telling of his career. And like we've said, over 50 years or something, he's got a very varied, but he's got more successes than misses, at least in my book. And it sounds like in yours too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But as always, Neil, it's a pleasure having you on to talk horror films, and in this case, Cronenberg. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.